0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's episode is on fast fashion, partly timed with the holiday shopping season when we are recording this episode. And. I I just realized, Caroline, now I'm feeling very self-conscious about what I'm wearing to the studio. Because I'm, I'm probably head to toe in what could be considered fast fashion. Oh, yeah? I'm wearing what nothing. What are some of your stores? Artisanal. Artisanal. I've got, <laughs> <laughs> right? Is that the opposite of fast fashion? Artisanal retail? <laughs> right? It's, it's made of bread and wood. Yes. It's whittled. These clothes are whittled. Oh man. Uh, one day when I can afford whittled clothing. Uh, I'm wearing a Nordstrom top. Okay. Madewell jeans. Mm-hmm. And Madewell shoes. Uh, by the way, y'all, I'm white. <laughs> um,
1: well, you know, uh, I guess the, the upside of that is that that
0: fashion isn't as fast and therefore damaging. It's like medium fashion. But let's be honest. Madewell is part of the whole – you know, it's related to – the gap and old navy yeah and oh yeah it's all part of the whole system
1: part of the system yeah hey heads up this uh this episode is just one giant guilt trip <laughs> um and i i i thought that it was important to talk about this for sure not only because we're getting into the holidays we're all going to be doing some shopping for our families and friends um but also it was interesting to address something that i personally have dealt with which is treating shopping as entertainment Oof, yeah. um I I have noticed, and it's good to be aware of this. But I have noticed that when things in my life aren't going so well, maybe I'm stressed, maybe I'm bummed out, maybe I am in some way not feeling fulfilled. I get
0: this like drive to go shopping. Is it a particular kind of thing
1: that you shop for? Clothes. Oh, I mean, I, I like to browse. Like if I if I were to browse, like I wouldn't want to browse through a, a Best Buy. Uh, Why not? I am not a consumer
0: of video games. Listen, dishwashers, (laughs) brand new dishwashers always make me feel top of the line. I am curious about the TVs that are curved, but like not enough to want to go browse them. Right, because you wouldn't be able to buy one. You know, you wouldn't satisfy that urge.
1: Right. And I mean, this is is something, too, that we're going to talk about, that psychological and even neurological aspect of what drives us to go out and buy clothes made on the other side of the world that we just don't need and might even end up falling apart like three days after we buy it.
0: Oh, I've totally had uh, cheap clothes <laughs> fall apart on me. <laughs> Thankfully not just like <laughs> not literally right off you. my body, <laughs> uh, but uh, kind of close to it. And I have a feeling that it is no news to anyone that clothes that we buy – In big box style stores are made overseas in not so great conditions. They're not terrific for the environment, uh, yada, yada, yada. And uh, if you want to go back and learn more about the environmental aspect of this, we did a podcast a couple years ago on uh, thrift clothing, kind of like what happens to our cheap or nicer clothes when we give them away. Um, But I think it's really important to put – Human faces mm-hmm. to these, these clothes that, that we're wearing. Um, and I've got, you know, all of these fast fashion brands in my wardrobe and I'm yeah. trying to get better about it. Um, but speaking to the, uh, the Insta fulfillment that you're talking about, I do a similar thing, but with online shopping and I will perhaps load up my cart, but I won't actually buy it. I'll just leave it there and then go away. Okay. Um, but in terms of actually buying things, because I am a bit of a thrifty nickel, I notice, (laughs) and y'all, there are studies to back this up. And I really think, (laughs) I really think that this is what's happening. I tend to, buy more go into actual stores because i hate doing that i will go into actual stores most likely when i am ovulating (laughs) really yeah there are all sorts of studies about how uh, women tend to shop more and uh, dress up more wear more makeup when they're ovulating because of all of the evo bio reasons you would assume are we nesting we're trying to land a man, honey. Well, we're trying to land a man
1: and then build a nest out of all of those tattered H&M shirts yes. that we've discarded. <laughs> yes. Put the baby here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I made an H&M nest. Put it right here. Um, well, speaking of H&M, uh, let's dive into the fast fashion marketplace that a lot of y'all are probably familiar with, brands. Like, of course, H&M, Zara, Uniqlo, Forever 21, all of these mass-produced clothes that are just churned out at an astonishing rate. Yeah, I was not aware of
1: just how fast some of these stores turned over their inventory. Um, Some of them are turning them over every day, others uh, a couple times a week, as opposed to... Uh, historically, more traditional fashion, which would turn over maybe once or twice a season, driven by weather demands. Oh, it's getting chilly. Let's put out the gloves and the coats or spring is coming. Let's get out our warm weather clothes. now And our, and our spring elbow gloves. <laughs> they, that's a glove that you just put on your elbow. Yeah, because you're wearing short sleeves and, and you so, haven't
0: moisturized throughout the winter. So right. you got ashy elbows. You need to
1: put them on something soft. Um And even back in 2004, the Harvard Business Review was basically like, this is insane. Uh, they wrote that Zara defies most of the current conventional wisdom about how supply chains should be run. They said the company can design, produce, and deliver a new garment and put it on display in its stores worldwide in a mere 15 days. Such a pace is unheard of in the fashion business where designers typically spend months planning for the next season. It's really created this cycle in the fashion industry of um, these cheap, quickly mass-produced clothes are hitting stores uh, turning over really fast, so the shopper expects things to turn over really fast. More people are using shopping as entertainment, as we'll talk about in a little bit. They want to go into the store and be entertained slash uh, buy a lot of cheap clothes.
0: Well, it's also the fact of being able to rip off runway designs right. at a really cheap price, and that's part of the really quick turnover that they're doing, Um and... Top fast fashion retailers have grown nearly 10% year over year for the past five years. Uh, they're part of a 1.2 trillion with a T dollar industry. Um, and just the average price that we're spending on clothes every year in the U.S. Has gone up so much. We're buying what upwards of like 60 garments per person every year. Um, in 2014, the average US household spent uh, more than $1,700 on apparel. Uh, and Forever 21, of course, is a real cornerstone of this.
1: Yeah, that empire alone employs 35,000 people, and in 2012, they earned 3.7 Billion with a B dollars. Uh, that's a lot of graphic tees and trendy pants and, uh, fake leather jackets. I would only know that because I've recently been looking for a fake leather jacket and have been discouraged from searching the fast fashion retailers.
0: Yeah, don't do it because it's also real obvious that it's. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: no, I don't want, yeah.
0: Mm mm. Oh, is that a plastic jacket? Oh, that's do nice. not stand near the bonfire. <laughs> I just I just melt. Well, and uh, are we going to get into though Forever 21's uh, John 3:16 their their bible uh, push which I noticed pretty quickly when I was much younger and would frequent Forever 21 because I was much closer to 21. Uh and you notice that they have uh, bible verses. And their bags. And it's because the Korean family that started Forever 21, uh, who are based in LA Mm -hmm. are super duper Christian. Yes, they are. So it's kind of interesting to see this, uh, I don't know, the, um. The convergence
1: of fashion and religion and money?
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because, uh, Forever 21 is founded by super Christian people, but aren't necessarily treating all of their supply chain uh, employees in the most Christian way, you would think.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, these fast fashion retailers, including Forever 21, are so successful partly because they're able to be so agile in this really changing industry and able to respond to trends so quickly. Like Kristen was saying, you know, if a celebrity wears something one day, Maybe two weeks later, you will see the same look on the shelves. Um And that really affects sort of the bottom line. I mean, Zara doesn't have the massive 50 to 70% markdowns that slower retailers like an Ann Taylor, where it seems like everything is always on sale. Um, Those stores have to mark things down drastically just to move out that bulk of inventory once trends shift. And people are like, I don't want to wear that. Plastic jacket this year. Um, and Zara co-founder Amancio Ortega is recognized by Forbes BT Dubs as the world's richest retailer. And did you know Sweden's wealthiest person is this guy named Stefan Persson? Uh, he happens to be the chairman of H and M. No surprise. So these these fast fashion empires can make their founders a lot of money. And part of this whole conversation too is the fact that we're basically internet monsters now. You know, Kristen was talking about doing her online shopping. Um, but it's, it's not just that. It's not just, oh, I love to shop online. It's our whole culture of existing online 24 seven. We're following all of these fashion and culture influencers on places like Instagram. This was something that Dr. Warren Houseman, a Stanford management science and engineering professor was talking about. Um, he says that fast fashion is a business Model tailor made for the multi-channel, I want it now, internet-driven buyer of today, and honestly, a lot of that does tie into our human person neurology and psychology,
0: and of course, because well before uh, Mister Person set up H and M and Zara landed in Spain. Compulsive buying has been a psychological phenomenon. It's something that researchers have looked into for a long time. It's defined as this irresistible drive to buy, despite the fact that you might not be able to afford it. And researchers find that it is, in fact, on the rise. And estimates range from 2 to 15% of people worldwide are compulsive shoppers, although we're not entirely sure why. Yeah, and it
1: is more pronounced in women, but that gender gap, any compulsive buying gender gap that exists, does shrink as you get younger. As you're looking at an entire population and, like, you look at teens versus people in their 40s, for instance, uh, young boys and young girls are just as likely to exhibit compulsive shopping tendencies, um, but as we age... Uh, women are more likely to exhibit that than men. So it, middle-aged ladies be shopping? Uh, be shopping, TJ Maxx, TJ Maxx. Uh, and this jibes, though, with previous research showing that women, adult lady people, tend to have more positive attitudes toward clothing shopping or browsing as a social or leisure activity, whereas typically, stereotypically, and according to this research, men tend to see it as work. So apparently when we're teens and our moms drop us off at the mall, we're all like, yeah, I love this shopping at Hot Topic for stickers and baggy jeans. Um, but as we age, men are like, that's not for me. And women are like, let's
0: still go to the mall and chit chat over a latte. Over a latte. <laughs> over a frappuccino and one of those giant cookies. Yeah. God.
1: You know what? Sidebar, I will be honest. Those uh, American cookie company M&M cookies got me through many a lengthy shopping trip with my mother when my blood
0: pr- or sugar started to dip. <laughs> so don't diss the cookie. That's why the cookies are there, you know, oh. to get to get you through those long days <laughs> um, and all of the shopping and especially fast fashion, which is affordable, more affordable for uh, teens and tweens with much smaller disposable incomes. This has launched an entire genre on YouTube of the haul videos. Uh, I mean, Bethany Moda has made an entire career out of this. Same thing with Michelle Phan in a way, uh, but more focused on makeup, of course. And while we don't have the number of hours that people have racked up watching haul videos exclusively on YouTube, I'm sure it's approximately bazillions, even just the amount of time that we're spending and and we, as in millennials, spend on retail sites is enormous. Forty five percent of us spend more than an hour a day online shopping, whether that is actually purchasing things mm-hmm. or browsing and, you know, kind of faking yourself out like I do.
1: Yeah. And I mean, when I'm I, I see how easy this could be to spend way way more than just an hour a day looking at retail sites especially if you're trying to do your holiday shopping and maybe you go down a rabbit hole of like accidentally shopping for yourself instead i've never done that but i actually was talking with my therapist about my tendency to spend too much time on pinterest because i've also realized about myself and this is weird somebody write me a letter if you've kind of felt the same thing about yourself um but I found that I can control the desire to, to pointlessly and endlessly shop if I peruse Pinterest. It's almost like getting, getting a hit of this, um, rewarding behavior without actually having my wallet take the hit i can look at all these beautiful clothes and these beautiful home interiors and not actually have to spend any money so i talked to my therapist about it i was like i find myself wasting too much time on pinterest everything is so pretty and glittery and she's like well if it actually does make you feel calmer and it's actually preventing you from going out and spending hundreds of dollars that you don't have at the store i mean maybe let yourself do it for like five or ten minutes at a time you know like set a timer (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the same thing I'm doing when I fill up my cart. Yeah. I mean, I'm just not on Pinterest. Yeah. You know, we have different ways of uh, sort of fulfilling that insta urge. Um, but when it comes to going through with compulsive shopping. Research has linked it with compensating for identity and mood problems. So not surprising. And uh, I, we don't have a study in front of us looking at this. But just anecdotally, I do know among a, a couple of friends of mine who uh, suffer from manic disorders when their mania peaks, so does their shopping. Right. Exactly.
1: And um – the the study that we were looking at uh, from the British Journal of Psychology in November 2005, as well as a March 2015 article in The Atlantic, talked about not only are people trying to compensate for these identity and mood issues, but if you, on top of that, have also internalized materialistic values. And that doesn't mean just like... I want new shoes or I feel better if I get a new dress. It's, it's literally basing a lot of your validation and worldview on having and acquiring. Um, that has been linked with generally lower well-being. So basically, all of these factors combined essentially means you need to have a little check-in with yourself. Uh, things are not probably okay. If you are compulsively shopping and your entire well-being is tied up with consuming.
0: And it's super easy to internalize materialistic values. I mean, it might sound uh, we are not sitting here in a seat of judgment saying that Um, it's reminding me of being a kid and growing up in a low income household. And brands were very, very, very important. To me, because I wanted to compensate for my real world situation when I was out of my lower income home and hanging out among higher income friends. I didn't want my clothes. To show that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that is something that my mother in her late sixties still grapples with. She grew up as part of a poor military family. And even when she was a kid, same thing. Brand names were very, very important to her. But what's interesting is she's the oldest of five. None of her other siblings feel that way. She was the oldest, I don't know, Sally's gotta have those brand names, baby. Everybody's different. Everybody's different. That's exactly right. And Helga Dittmar, who wrote the essay in the British Journal of Psychology back in 2005, uh, links our, you know, seeking mood repair and improving our self-identity through material goods, all of this compulsive shopping. She links it to our culture's emphasis On consumer culture, which, again, makes total sense. Like, if we are driven to be good little capitalists and shop to our heart's content to feel better, then it makes sense that compulsive shopping, consumer culture, mood repair, it's all tied up together. And as April Lane Benson, who's a psychologist and author of To Buy or Not to Buy writes, Uh, you might be having an existential crisis. Whoa. What? Yeah.
0: What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Break it down for me. Here, here
1: we go. So Benson says, uh, I think that it has something to do with the pace that we live our lives at and the paucity of time that so many of us spend in pursuits that really feed our souls. Shopping is a way that we search for ourselves and our place in the world. A lot of people conflate the search for self with the search stuff. So those days that I'm feeling out of sorts and I'm like maybe I can just pop into anthropology or made well and buy a new sweater that's just going to sit at the bottom of my closet again and then in a year I'll remember that I have it. Perhaps I need to be looking more inward and figuring out what's really going on. Are you lonely?
0: What's your existential crisis, Caroline? Get out of anthropology or go to (laughs) anthropology and ask a sales clerk. Excuse me, I'm I know I shouldn't be here. Uh but
1: <laughs> Do you have um is deeper meaning on sale today? Uh I'm looking for purpose. Do you have purpose in like a pink shade or anything? Sure, but it's gonna cost you. Yeah. Because no it's kidding. anthropology.
0: Um of course too, our brains are playing a role in this because of our whole dopamine reward system. And researchers have looked at our brains. On shopping, Uh, there was a 2007 study we were looking at, um, and they used fMRIs to look at shoppers' brains when they were just out looking for clothes. And when they spotted something that they really liked, when they were at anthropology, at the sale rack, and were like, oh, my gosh, this is something that actually looks like it could fit a human body. I'll try it on. (laughs) And it's on sale. What do you know? Their nucleus accumbens, or our pleasure center as it's nicknamed, lit up. Oh, and I know, girl, I know that feeling. Oh, yeah.
1: Hello. Something in anthropology that fits, doesn't have too many ruffles, is right. it see-through. And Not also, too much ruching. Ruching. But when that shopper saw the price of that minimally ruffled and ruched item, The medial prefrontal cortex weighed the decision While the insula, which is your pain processor in the brain, reacted to the cost. You're literally being like, oh, my God, it's beautiful, but it hurts.
0: Everything is beautiful and everything hurts. That's like uh, what wedding dress shopping was a lot like for me. (laughs) I bet. Yeah, that's like shopping on steroids. Talk about some hedonic competition, which is what the researchers refer to as that sort of cost-benefit analysis that your brain is instantly doing when you perhaps are experiencing some sticker shock.
1: Yes. And so what does it ha- what does this have to do with fast fashion? Well, we get pleasure from a good bargain. Bargain shoppers out there, you ain't crazy. You're just responding to the natural and normal processes going on in your brain.
0: I know I am. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for validating me. <laughs>
1: Um, The medial prefrontal cortex, again, is doing that cost-benefit analysis. And Scott Rick, one of the study's authors, said that it seemed to be responsive, not necessarily to price alone or how much I like it, but that comparison of the two, that weighing, how much I like it compared to what you charge me for it. And, I mean, hello, fast fashion and shopping the sales rack and using that to fulfill that need even if you're not like a clinically compulsive shopper it still feels good to get a hit of that beautiful item whether it's clothing or something like a a vase perhaps um And it's on sale? Oh, man, you just triggered all of the good stuff in my brain. Just getting high at H&M, baby. Yeah, and so that's why fast fashion is so perfect for this brain activity. That cheap clothing is super easy to buy. And the frequent new deliveries that places like H&M or Zara get mean that we always have something new
0: to expect and to look at. And we gotta talk though about how we got here industry wise, uh, because of course it wasn't always this way. And we're gonna get into that when we come right back from a fast fashion break. Mm
1: In terms of our timeline, let's look at how our shopping has changed. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, clothing accounted in 1901 for 14% of Americans' total discretionary expenditures. By 1960, that had fallen to 10.4%. And then by 2013, that 14% had plummeted to just 3.1% of our total expenditures. And at the same time, though, we're buying way more. So, so to
0: translate, things cost much less than they used to, um, and we have more money to spend. So we are spending less to buy more.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, all right, pre nineteenth century, uh, basically, you, Kristen. Oh, hello. You have a you have a sheep. Oh, good, yes, good. And you you cuddle with the sheep and you love it, and then you shear it to get its wool, and you you make a sweater.
0: I've skipped some steps. Oh no, that's just I. I can do it that fast. <laughs> y- y'all, well, de- y'all never see me make a sweater. If you shear the wool in the shape of a sweater, uh-huh. you can just put it on yourself, right? And if a stiff wind don't blow, <laughs> you're good to go. That's my old rhyme. <laughs> that's what everybody was saying before the Industrial Revolution. You know, just just uh, shear a sweater-sized patch of wool, and if the and if and if, it, stiff, yeah. if ye old wind don't blow. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think there are actually some old folk songs (laughs) along those lines. But, all right, as you might expect, uh, with the Industrial Revolution also comes faster fashion. Uh, Thanks to new textile machines, factories, and ready-made clothing, uh, you also have more clothing made in bulk in a range of sizes rather than clothes being made to order each time an individual person orders those clothes. And so in 1846 we get yet another fast fashion development. The sewing machine is patented.
0: Helpful. That, that's
1: that's too fast, almost. And this contributed to an extremely rapid fall in the price of clothing and an enormous increase in the scale of clothing manufacturing. And with more garment factories and sewing innovations, the dressmaking business grew. Uh, well, uh, although, of course, if you were poor, you were still making your own clothes, so there's Issues of class and race in here as well. Um, and actually, those poorer people who were working as part of this industry were called sweaters. They were the people to whom the dressmaking businesses, those smaller dressmaking businesses, would outsource a lot of their production. So this is sort of an early glimpse at the effects of speeding up fashion. A lot of the production is outsourced outside of the person who's actually making and or needing that item of clothing.
0: And the fact of the matter is, um, since that time, the faster our fashion has become, the more dangerous it's become for the people who are making it. And, uh, we dived into some of this labor history and women in our podcast a few months ago, uh, on the roots of International Women's Day, um, in which we mention, of course, the 1911 triangle shirtwaist factory fire that killed 186 people, mostly young female immigrants, because the, a fire broke out and there was no way to escape. There were no exits. I mean, they had they had the people lit, almost locked into these rooms so that they could do nothing but work. Exactly.
1: So with World War II... And the fabric restrictions that came along with that, we get more functional styles. And all of this leads to this increase in standardized production. And so basically, you have a lot of middle class consumers who are getting used to the value of buying mass produced clothing and – Right here in this timeline in 1947 is when we see H&M open in Sweden.
0: And yeah, I had no idea H&M was that old. Well, okay. Do you think they were printing sassy sweatshirts uh like some of the ones that I owned back then? For sure, <laughs> sassy sweatshirts um because that was all the rage in 1947.
1: Duh. But the founder, Erling Person, was actually inspired to open H&M by the post-war high-volume retailers here in the United States. So he looked around at mass production and was like, a good idea.
0: The Person family can make a lot of money. Uh, And when we get to the 1960s, by now, teenage culture mm-hmm. has fully developed. And this is really important because, y'all, at the, at the turn of the century, um, you know, from the 1800s to the, to the 1900s, teenagers kind of like didn't exist. But by the 1960s, we have this booming post-World War II consumer culture. And teenage culture with their disposable income, and they loved being on trend. I mean, as probably most of us can identify with when we are trying to figure out who we are and we don't want to stand out too much. So, you know, back then, what would it be? Put on your, put on your bell bottoms and get groovy, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I would have been, uh, as cool of a teen back then as I was <laughs> when I was growing up, which is to say, not much. I mean, not very. That's not even the right way to say it. I just picture you walking up to a group of teenagers in the 1960s and
1: saying that. Hey,
0: kids, holding up a peace sign. I've got some, like, little job leaded sunglasses on. Uh...
1: <laughs> okay, so now that we've set the scene
0: for you. Um, the... <laughs> Can I tell you about my friend? His name Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> those
1: uh-huh. Those fashion brands had to find ways to keep up with the increasing demand for faster, cheaper fashion. So this is when you see these massive textile mills opening all over the developing world, which allowed those U.S. and European companies to save millions of dollars through outsourcing. Uh, and by the time we hit 1975, Zara opens in northern Spain with speed as its driving force. And by the time Zara actually hit US shores in 1990, uh, the New York Times actually used the term fast Fashion to
0: describe it. I still remember the very first Zara that I went to. I was in Barcelona uh, studying abroad in college, and uh, one of my besties who I went with knew about Zara. I was, be, from my previous impression, <laughs> you you might you might uh, guess that I, I wasn't so caught up with uh, with the times and she was like we've got to go to Zara it's the place uh so i still remember going to that um that zara and experiencing that hedonic competition in my head because yeah. at the time the euro was like super outpacing the dollar and i think i bought maybe a necklace <laughs> <laughs> or something
1: <laughs> well i re- i mean i remember going into my first h&m when i was in england
0: Oh yeah. And being like, Oh my <laughs> God. Well, this cause is amazing. H- and H&M is cheaper than Zara. It yeah. still is. Like there's even, even today, Zara, Zara can be pricey. Uh, but you know what is not pricey is all F21, baby. <laughs> yeah. In 1984,
1: uh, to celebrate the birth of Kristen Conger, the first Forever 21 opened. In Los Angeles. Yeah, that, that is a fact. Uh, that's a fact.
0: <laughs> All of their early uh, quirky sweatshirts just had a picture of baby Kristen on them. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. You know, they love Christ. My name's Kristen. It was just a match made in heaven. That's right. And by the time we hit the 1990s and
1: 2000 Thousands Culturally, it's becoming cooler to flaunt your love of low-cost fashion. Um, if you're savvy enough, you can mix your high and your low pieces, as all of the women's magazines instruct you to do. And the New York Times even reported that it was chic to pay less. And don't forget, in 2000, the United States also got its first H&M. So all of this stuff is happening at the same time to where now high profile women have embraced disposable fashion. You have Kate Middleton and Michelle Obama sporting a mix of high and low, including Zara and H&M.
0: And uh, I am curious for listeners who are more in the know about the fashion industry and particularly clothing made in the USA and in um, clothing districts in L.A. and Brooklyn specifically, because for American Apparel, for instance, um, they have always touted that their clothes are made ethically in the U.S. But I've also seen that, you know, just because something is made in the USA doesn't necessarily mean that it is ethically made because sweatshops exist here as well. Um, So I think that's something important to remember because a a lot of the focus on sweatshops, understandably, is on uh, clothing made in Bangladesh and Cambodia and China and in uh, Latin and South America. But um, we are not guilt-free in that as well in terms of clothes that are made in the US. Um, so we should also probably put up some links um, and listeners send us any resources you have on really detecting, being able to quickly detect whether your clothing is more ethically made. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, now that we've bought these clothes and they've worn their welcome in our wardrobes, what happens to them? Well, we will get into all of that disposable truth when we come right back from a quick break. <laughs>
1: So a lot of this again uh, goes back to an episode that Kristen mentioned earlier that we did a couple years ago on donating clothes, buying clothes at thrift stores. What happens to clothes essentially when you get rid of them? But it is worth revisiting um, some of these points, mainly that mainly in how fast fashion ties into all of this stuff. Because uh, the thing is. Fast fashion, we're able to consume so many more clothes so much faster. And then when they start to disintegrate or we've moved on to the next fast fashion trend, we a lot of the times donate our clothes. We feel good about ourselves. Oh, see, I didn't throw this into a landfill. But unfortunately, what that means is that charities and secondhand stores, places like a Goodwill for a big name, um have to work that much harder and faster to dig through those massive piles of clothes to find the stuff that's actually sellable, the stuff that they can actually make money on that's not just disintegrating.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's why if you go to a uh, secondhand store to sell your clothes, they don't want your H&M and Forever 21 at all because we all, we all know the quality or lack thereof, um, with which it was made and also the accessibility. Of it. Um, so what happens is that uh, charities sell only 20% of the clothing donations that they receive, and so after that, um, the clothes that are unused and unwanted uh, will be either sent to be made into Auto shop rags and building insulation and carpet padding things like that, Um or they will be sent in bulk to African and Central American countries, especially developing countries. Um, so they end up wearing our uh, our snarky H and M sweatshirts. Well, but
1: the focus of a lot of articles that we read about this was like, yeah, sure, a lot of these clothes get sent overseas. Um, and flood these clothing and textile markets in African and Central American countries. But it's getting to the point where those markets are so flooded with poor quality clothes that people in these countries are like, uh, no, thanks. Either I need something that's going to withstand me actually wearing this and washing it or because that fast fashion is so cheap and accessible, I can go buy it myself. Um, and so the focus of a lot of these articles is that basically we have an issue because we're hitting a point if we're not already there. We are on the verge of a point where we are going to have a massive glob of clothes that we can't get rid of because if nobody wants them, they're going to end up in a landfill or incinerator. 84% of our unwanted clothes in 2012 in the U.S. wound up in a landfill or an incinerator. And over the past 20 years, the volume of clothes that we Americans have trashed has doubled from 7 to 14 million tons, which breaks down to 80 pounds of clothing a per person. And before you're like, oh, but it's okay because cotton is biodegradable. Well, keep in mind that A, it took thousands and thousands of gallons of water to make your cotton clothes, even if they're organic, and that cotton requires way more insecticides than a lot of other fabrics do. Um, but also, if it's been bleached, dyed, anything like that, it is going to release that stuff into the ground and therefore into the ground water. And all of that stuff, if you burn it, is just going to end up in the air, which, of course, is a big problem, too, if the thing you're destroying is a uh, synthetic
0: fiber as well. So all of that's just adding to... Uh Greenhouse gases. Yeah,
1: because, I mean, yeah, you already have the carbon emissions and stuff to ship raw materials to countries like Vietnam, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Philippines, uh, and then the oil that is used to ship the final product back to us.
0: So not only are these clothes environmentally irresponsible, um, they're also supporting human rights violations a lot of the times, because when we look at who is making fast fashion... Uh, it's very much a feminist issue that we need to be aware of um, across Asia, in particular, millions of women, most it's mostly women mm-hmm. and children who are making these clothes. And if we look at the conditions that they are working and living in and how our shopping habits are really supporting that and funding that, um, this is a major feminist issue that we need to be more conscious of, absolutely, every time we head up to that cash register.
1: Yeah. um, Apparel, in general, is actually the largest employer of women globally. Women ages 18 to 35 make up 80% of garment workers, um, and many have children and families to provide for and are the main earners in those families. But the majority of these women working in the apparel industry globally uh, less than 2% of them are actually receiving a living wage, which is worth noting. When you look at that insanely low price tag and you're like, oh, my God, how can a shirt be $3? This is why. And plenty, plenty of those big mega brands we've been talking about have to worry about this or should be worrying about this and addressing this. But also, you know, a lot of your celebrity brands that are on the cheaper side, they are guilty of exploiting these workers as well. And there's this group, Labor Behind the Label, that really focuses on a lot of this exploitation of apparel workers. And they found that poor ventilation and heat, lack of access to water, overwork, and chemical exposure in factories in Cambodia in particular have led to frequent fainting and malnutrition among the workers, and 90% of them are female. Uh, since 2011, they wrote, 1,500 to 2,000 factory workers have fainted each year, often in groups of 100 at a time.
0: And in 2012, worldwide attention was focused on this. We were kind of, you know, shaken out of our retail slumber uh, due to the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory in Bangladesh, where 1,129 people were killed when the factory crumbled, 80 percent of whom were women, along with a number of children, and while you have a number of household brands stepping up in response to that, saying we're gonna do better, uh, it ne- it hasn't necessarily gotten better because, you know, take H and M for instance. We we're really harping on H and M, and I feel like I should go home and, and burn all of my H and M clothes, no! although I shouldn't because that'll release all the <laughs> methane gases into the atmosphere. Um. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to cut them up to make the nest for my baby. Right. There we go. Get with it. So. Uh, in our empower episode... A few weeks back talking about how, um, you know, f- feminism has been co-opted by brands to make us feel better about these kinds of purchases that we're making. And H&M uh, this past winter came out with uh, an ad campaign featuring uh, trans models, uh, women of color, women of all shapes and sizes, a very diverse range that you rarely see um, in a, a commercial and it received a lot of praise for it. But here is the thing before you start, you know, giving snaps to H&M, because what they aren't showing are all of largely the women working in their factories who are still suffering. And, you know, H&M is called, you know, the kinds of contracts that these people are, are locked into for basically no wages and. Um, under threats of harassment um they call it an industry-wide problem and sort of skirt no pun intended uh responsibility for a lot of this saying like oh well it's all of these it's all of these factories that we outsource to it's just it's our supply chain we're trying to you know do the thing where you can like bring in all your clothes and you can recycle them madewell has a similar thing you can bring in your jeans and recycle them But the fact of the matter is a lot of those a lot of those women are suffering daily sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination and just unconscionable living conditions because of this. Yeah, there was
1: a big article that made the rounds not too long ago that found that 70 percent of female workers at factories in Gangzhou, China had been sexually harassed and 15 percent of them had left their jobs to get away from it. Um, according to the China China Labor Bulletin in June 2013, uh, nearly all of the respondents agreed that their employer, the trade union and the Women's Federation and even the police would be of little help in addressing the problem. They just did not believe that anyone around was able to actually help put a stop to the sexual harassment. And uh, in some instances, workers have faced job termination if they won't have sex with a supervisor. In Bangladesh, female garment workers are 3% of the population, but they account for 11% of rape cases in their country. And those rape cases are then
0: linked to higher rates of suicide. And when these factory workers have attempted to organize, sometimes the governments and military forces will... Uh, crack down on them. This happened in Cambodia, where uh, some paramilitary groups and the police were sent in specifically to break up worker protests. And some workers have died uh in the process of that. Yeah.
1: And... W- <laughs> I say we. The world is not really setting up a good future for the children who are exploited in this system. Uh, the fashion and textile industry employs about 250 million children, some of them as young as five, meaning they're not in school, meaning they then have fewer chances for social mobility as they get older. And that labor behind the label group points out that an educated girl – will reinvest 90% of her future income in her family and, in turn, her community. And they talk about how, therefore, putting these girls in schools rather than in factories is really an investment in the future. But, of course, it can be hard to see that when you just need everyone in your family all hands on deck to be making money to support you.
0: Well, and certainly these factories are not... Literally investing in the future as in reproduction. Uh, There was a a series of reports that came out earlier in 2016 from the Asia Floor Wage Alliance uh, that interviewed a number of women in H&M's supplier factories in Cambodia and India. And the AFWA found that workers in 11 of the 12 Cambodian factories, uh, women were fired for becoming pregnant. Um, and all of the workers who were, who they interviewed in the Indian factories reported the same thing. So, I mean, there's just, there's no, it feels like there's, there's no, there's no winning, there's no upside to anyone but these end users, us, the consumers. Well, so what are our options? Well, I think that public nudity just needs to <laughs> b- become okay. It's not like we don't see enough on HBO, am I right? <laughs> so, you're telling me that I need to get a grip
1: and cut out using shopping as therapy or entertainment.
0: Listen, if you're on Pinterest, whatever, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. You're not you're not hurting anyone. By going on Pinterest. Right. Okay. It's about obviously like what you are consuming. And I am as guilty of this as anyone else, you know? And it's hard to say this too when you don't make a lot of cash, when you need right. a bargain. Right. And a lot of people do get around this, um, through thrifting or making their own clothes when possible, when you have the time and the resources to be able to do that, um, so one way to go about it is to try to take more of a Michael Pollan approach to it. You know, he, he's the guy who said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that's a good dietary rule to live by. Yeah. So when it comes to clothes, um, eat food, <laughs> not too many clothes. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, basically it's like, Buy fewer things, and when you do, buy them of higher quality right. and lasting design uh, so that you will – and wear your clothes more. And I got to say,
1: I mean, that, that's that been a hard pill to swallow as I moved from being a poor student to a poor newspaper employee. Uh, the idea that you are poor and can't buy enough stuff stays with you, and – Uh, It's been a hard pill to swallow to be like, no, 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 you need to invest up front in these nicer grown-up clothes so that they don't fall apart. Uh, It's so much easier to say, like, I'm just going to run to fill in the fast fashion brand here and and pick up a couple shirts because then my closet will be spiced up and I'll feel better about myself. When, for the sake of our entire globe and our global network, it would be better if, A, you just repaired the clothes you had. I should learn – to sew. Or I'll just ask Holly from History Stuff to make something for me. Um, but also buy better stuff, better quality that lasts longer. And when you are done with it, Try having a stuff swap with your girlfriends. I've done this a lot of times. Uh, Get some women together with some mimosas. Trade clothes and anything that's left over. Take it to a domestic violence shelter. Uh, I've taken old bridesmaids dresses to prom dress charities to give to high school girls who can't afford to get a prom dress.
0: Oh, there's also the Dress for Success style charities where you can um, drop off uh, more of your office wear Mm -hmm. um, that will be donated to women to help them uh, go on job interviews and find employment. And the thing is though so Caroline, with all of this, uh, it is still I mean it's if I were sitting here listening to this um, as my mom, uh, you know maybe when when she was my age and I don't know how much money my parents had when they were my age, but still from my perspective, she's a mother of five, don't, doesn't have much money. You're telling her to go to where, you know, like go buy some $200 jeans, like seriously, like that's that, that's the, the, the part, the bridge. I don't know how to gap. And it's a similar kind of issue. Speaking of Michael Pollan, it's the same kind of thing with food where we have made cheap, unhealthy stuff. More affordable and available, yeah. And available than the stuff that actually sustains us. So in the same way that we have food deserts, you know, and uh, McDonald's dollar menus uh, that are really the only accessible thing to say a lot of low income single moms, uh, you have similar situations with our clothes as well. Yeah. So, So it's like, if you, if you have the money, of course, like shop ethically, but, um, but, but it's, it's one, That's affecting one sliver of the population. Right.
1: Well, but I I hope that's what we hear from listeners. I know we have a lot of listeners out there who are very dedicated and concerned with these issues of fashion and the apparel industry and all of the abuses they're in. So maybe there are people out there who can help tell us and give us some ideas at how to bridge that gap.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously for, uh, lower income people, there are goodwills in place like, places like that, secondhand stores, um, that are available. But I think too, it's still, it's always on us in positions of privilege. And right now we're talking about economic privilege. It's on us to do what we can to do the most for people who are disenfranchised, you know, and part of that is, is clothing that we have to put on every day in order to go out and live in the world. And it's not just about the people who are in our own backyards, but also the people who we will never see um, and probably whose voices we will never hear who are in those factories making the clothes. So listeners, help us out. What What do we do? Honestly, what do we do? Um, and what are some things that we can do, especially during the holiday season to... Start making an impact in terms of this. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet the podcast at Podcast. You can tweet, though, Caroline and me personally, if you like. I'm at Kristen Conger. I'm at the Caroline Irv. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from L'Oreal in response to her episode a little while back on Phyllis Schlafly. And folks, uh, especially in the U.S., who are sort of mystified over the election results, and particularly the majority of white women who voted for uh, now president-elect Donald Trump, uh, listen to this episode on Phyllis Schlafly. It starts to explain a lot. Anyway, back to L'Oreal. She writes... I just finished your podcast about that oh-so-lovely human peach laugh. Wow. There was more than one point where I could feel my blood start to boil. And while there were a couple of things she stood for that I could kind of empathize with, most of it was just way too out there for me. So I'm thankful for my own mom, who did stay home and raise my siblings, and I. There were five of us. It was no easy task. Oh, hey, what's up? Me too. Me too. I'm also thankful for a father who, when my mom did choose the career path when I was about 16, was 100% supportive. Never did my dad allude to sentiments of how a woman's place is in the home and the man's place is in the workforce, and the two should never mix, blah, blah, blah. Whatever my mother wanted to do in the home or outside, he's always been her biggest fan. When she had to go to work, he was always home cooking dinner, getting the kids ready for bed, cleaning and doing all of those quote-unquote mom jobs, because he genuinely wanted to help my mom with the things she felt were important to give her children a happy home. I consider myself a feminist, but I don't think there's anything wrong with women wanting to stay home with their children. It's a noble thing. That's the one thing I would say that I somewhat agree with P. laughs on, but only to an extent. Personally, having children terrifies me. So those women who choose to stay home with their kids instead of working, I applaud you. It isn't easy work. I also think if a mo- woman wants to have a career and children, it's a great option as well. But it is so individual and each woman has a different path to take. Amen. For some women, it works to be in the home exclusively with the kids and they love it. And for others, it doesn't work. And the careers are the path they choose. Both are noble endeavors, in my opinion, and both have the potential to influence people for the better. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions about women who choose to stay home. Is it anti-feminist? Well, in a short answer, no. No. Um, And she goes on to ask whether a woman can be a feminist and also choose to be at home with her children. Absolutely. Um And uh, L'Oreal, thank you so much for sharing this email. And also just to let a lot of listeners know that we have heard that request um, for an episode on uh, stay-at-home moms from a lot of you. So it is something that we are planning to tackle in the future. So thanks a lot. I have a letter here from
1: Lyndon in response to our Sharing Economy and Uber Privilege episode. Uh, Lyndon says, Something interesting to consider in regard to these sharing economy services is how they work for people with disabilities. Something interesting to note, which I know from listening to Simi Linton talk, is how Uber has impacted the movement to increase the availability of accessible taxis in New York particularly. While they're making some forward progress, at least in certain cities, services such as Uber are generally not that disability accessible. Since drivers are using their own cars, they are less likely to be accessible vehicles, and many of the programs to increase accessibility are voluntary so drivers don't have to participate in them. Similarly, services like Airbnb create issues because there's no requirement for units to be accessible or have accessibility features such as traditional hotels would have. While a host cannot turn down a renter because of disability, the mere fact that units are not required to be accessible limits the number of options for renters with physical disabilities. Not all hosts provide accurate information about unit accessibility either. For example, I rented a unit without any way of knowing there was a set of steep and narrow stairs leading up. While this was hard on my body for many reasons, I was able to manage the stairs, but I wondered what would have happened had I not been able to. I should note the positives for sharing economy services for people with disabilities as well, such as the ability with services such as TaskRabbit to have assistance with a wide variety of tasks as needed. I just wanted to mention another often marginalized group who we often forget to consider when we discuss how we interact with various parts of our world keep up the amazing work and Lyndon, thank you for providing us with the amazing perspective
0: and thanks to everyone who's written into us momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address um, and speaking of emails shameless self-promotion alert uh, i've started a tiny letter in response to all of the post-election awfulness called the Do Better Dispatch and if you're interested in checking that out and subscribing you can head to tinyletter.com slash Kristen and I spell my name C-R-I-S T-E-N and for Stuff Mom Never Told You, social media, videos and podcasts with our sources so you can learn even more about fast fashion, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com You.com.